two. You can turn in your hymnal to 170. Turn in our hymnal. What's that? That's the songbook. Which has a reflection in hymn 170 on what we're talking about today. It is not the same as the scripture, but it is a re- reflection on it. And we just heard a beautiful rendition. Thank you, Christina, for playing for us. Thou didst leave thy throne. We're talking this morning about what Christmas is, an unlikely, unlikely Christmas passage. What we'll usually do for Christmas is we read uh, Matthew 1, switch over to Luke 2, um, get the, the, the Bethlehem story, flip back over to Matthew, and get the wise men and the and the, uh, fle- the fleeing to Egypt and the death of Herod and uh, after the killing of the innocents in Bethlehem. And we'll tell the story chronologically through the Gospels. And we will and we do and we always do that. It's, it's so important to understand this. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all fit together beautifully uh, to present this. The Christmas presentation in John, the Gospel of John, anybody know what it is? It's very theologically focused on what the incarnation is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 of John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. That's the Christmas event that God became one of us. It's the central confession of Christianity. It's the thing that if you lose it, it's the sine, the sine qua non. If you lose this one, you've lost the whole thing. You've lost Christianity. You've lost the gospel. You've lost everything And for a time in church history, around the late 200s and early 300s AD, we almost did, as a a body, as a group of Christians, of churches, we almost did lose the thought because of a knucklehead named Arius. That's technical theological language you don't need to bother with, a knucklehead uh, theologian named Arius. And Arius had this great idea that occurred to him, and he thought it was the way to be. Disregarding all of that was revealed in the Old Testament about God being with us and all that was expected of the long-expected Messiah, and looking in a certain specific way at the New Testament revelation, he concluded that Jesus was not God, but he was God to me. He was a super creature, but after all, just a creature, a created being by God, and so not God himself, not God in the flesh. And we would all agree with Arius at least this much, that God the Father is not God the Son, We all must say that, but at the same breath we will say, but both, actually all three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit are God. And this central confession of Christianity arises out of the the study of the Old and New Testaments in detail, and it's an interesting thing because it's the central doctrine, and there's so much that you have to put together to understand it from the text itself. I believe in inductive study of the Bible and deriving your theology from studying the text. I do that with you all the time. Some of you are like, no, (laughs) no way. I do believe in that with all my heart, but I also believe in getting a good theological summary and knowing whether you can induce it from uh, Philippians 2 or not, that Jesus is God in the flesh. The promise from Isaiah to Ahaz, Ahaz, the king in Judah, in Isaiah 7.14 was literally fulfilled. That Jesus, the son of the virgin, is not just a super creature or a really good person, but he's God in the flesh. He's God with us. Emmanuel, that's what it means. Emmanuel, we, we sing, Co, come, O, come, Emmanuel. That's Hebrew. Emmanu, Emmanu is a prepositional phrase, with us. It just means with us. Em is preposition with, and then you add the pronominal suffix, anu, and emanu, with us. And then El is short for Elohim. Elohim is God. With us is God is what that name Emmanuel means. And so it's not that God is with us because somebody special came along who really knows God. That's not enough. 
the prophecy of the virgin conceiving and giving birth to a son in Isaiah 7 was fulfilled in that the Son of God, who is God himself in the flesh, a, 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 a very God in the same essence as the Father, took on flesh of man and is now the God-man. And that is a truth that is true beginning uh, with the event of the conception and birth of our Savior and is going to be true uh, forever. The incarnation doesn't stop. I once heard it described, listen, this is interesting, that the period of Jesus' sojourn on earth from his birth until his resurrection and ascension, described, for example, in Matthew 28, 19, 20, that that was the period of the incarnation. That's a big mistake. That's a horrible, gross error. And the reason is because in the flesh of man and in a resurrection body, God the Son will forever be incarnate. He's always going to be the incarnate Son of God ever since this moment in human history when he took on flesh. It's the central confession of our faith. We mention it and emphasize it every time we take the Lord's table, which is monthly. And so I want to show you one way, one place we induce this doctrine from the text. One way we read out the meaning of the text and conclude nothing other than that Jesus Christ, the son of Mary, the stepson of Joseph, is God the Son in the flesh of man so that he is Daniel's prophesied son of man. Many names for Jesus, God the Son, the Son of God, the Son of Man. We have the incarnation of the Son of God in our key passage, one of three key passages in the New Testament that teach this, in Philippians chapter 2. Now be careful. Those of you who are of, a, of an argumentative bent that want to say, well, if I can disprove this one, then I can get him. Don't, it doesn't really work because this passage doesn't stand alone. I have an expectation from the Old Testament prophecies that he'll be God in the flesh. But this passage is very clear, and you can point to words that say, if this is true and this is true, then it has to be that he's both God and man in one person. You have to say it from the passage. Philippians 2, and we, we did context last time, and today I'll show you a little bit more detail verse by verse. Um, you, you might ask the question, where in the Bible would I find Philippians? You might have grown up in a church where the Bible was discouraged, and you weren't supposed to read the Bible, the priest will read it for you, or the pastor will read it for you. And so we undo the Reformation by taking the Bible out of people's hands. Maybe you've grown up with no Bible at all, and you're like, that thing on the, on the, on the rack there, if I touch it, it's going to set me on fire. No. That's a little dramatic, people. Uh, where it is in the Bible, Philippians, is in the letters of Paul, because he's writing to the people in Philippi, Philippi. And Philippians is like almost to the very end. In fact, the Pauline corpus, or Pauline corpus, we say Pauline, as an adjective corpus of, of, uh, of, of his writings, starts in Romans, the way we've printed our Bibles. Romans isn't the first letter he wrote. Galatians is the first one we have uh, chronologically. But Romans is right here in my Bible, and so that much of it is Paul and then the general epistles and Revelation. In other words, we are ignoring a whole lot of Bible a lot of times if we're only focused on Paul, and we try to, we try to round that out. But this doctrine is so clear, and I want to emphasize this doctrine right now. But there's Romans, and then I just keep going through Paul until I get to Philippians. And you might get to 1 Timothy and say, is that before or after? That's after, so you've got to go back, and you've got to keep flipping. And so I think this is a much better way to find stuff in your Bible than tabbing it out or looking up at the table of contents. You just, just thumb through it, because guess what's happening? Familiarization. And these little letters are short. Ephesians, only two or three pages in your Bible. Philippians, two or three pages. So you've got to go back. Remember, girls eat popcorn, or guys eat popcorn, or Grinches eat popcorn, G-E-P-C, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians is the order and the shuns. And um, I will continue to do this until you all resolve not to look in your tables of contents or tab out your Bibles 
Amen. All right. In Philippians chapter 2, we have in the New American Standard, it reads this way, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. I don't hesitate to show you any English Bible translation that is a formal equivalent translation like the King James or New King James or New American Standard or Holman Christian. I don't hesitate to show you this because I'm going to take you into the Greek and show you why we translate it the way we do. But the simple English reading, okay, where we get our heads in the ballpark of what we're talking about is this way. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the, or taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Philippians 2, 5 through 8, which I will look with you verse by verse. But we have to tell the whole story. Hopefully we'll get to the rest of the story on uh, Friday night. We'll talk more about the consequence of the humbling of himself before the Father that the Son engaged in. Humbling himself to great humiliation. Humbling himself all the way to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And what's the outcome for this reason? Also, God, that's the Father, highly exalted him and bestowed on him in the name which is above every name. And you're like, well, okay, so what would be the name? You know what the name is? Yeshua. So the name of Yeshua. Not the Lord Jesus Christ, not the Lord, not Jesus Christ, not Yahweh, not Yahweh Sabaoth, just Jesus, Yeshua. The humanity the name that he received when he was born, according to the instruction of the angels by the direction of her husband, Mary, uh, Joseph, they named their baby Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, Savior. And this is the name that's exalted. That's something that needs to kind of jump out at us. The humanity of Christ is exalted above every name. In the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven who are in heaven on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. I have a question based on Philippians 2, 11. Let's say that you're not one of these people that likes it or believes it. You're not there. Jesus isn't your Lord. You're not thinking this way. Let's say that that applies to you. Just think of this with me. If you are that way, just kind of go with this. This is a great moment of evangelistic interest. You could take someone to Philippians 2, 11 and say, this is the destiny of all mankind I really believe. Maybe you're saying, I'm not going to call him Lord. I'm not going to say he's God. I'm not going to say that he is my master. Every tongue is going to, in the future, confess. You know what every means? It doesn't mean all the elect. It means everybody. Wherever they are are going to say, well, okay, now we know the truth. We wish we'd learned it the easy way when God was asking us to walk by faith and not by sight. But now that we see, we're, we've learned it the hard way. And boy, is it hot. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. See, this is the time, this is the moment, this is the day of the offer of salvation for all of us. We've broken horrifically, selfish, if only you knew what was going on inside of the person next to you, and thank God that you don't. If only there was a scrolling uh, 1990s LED sign with all the stupid things that you think of that nobody else needs to know about. Elon Musk, get that away from me, this Neuralink thing. I don't need anybody to know what I'm thinking except the Lord Jesus. God alone can know my thoughts, right? We need that, that privacy. Yeah, with me, I lost you. Okay, Elon Musk is this billionaire, and he's trying to in, integrate uh, technology into your brain. He's going to put an implant, and they're saying they're interfacing with the brain. And I'm, that's where I, by the way, 
I draw the line at transhumanism on technology. They're not going to put anything in my body. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and I will dogmatically insist, and it may be a leap of faith because the Bible doesn't say it, don't put implants in your body. It just says your body is the temple of the Spirit. But I would say dogmatically, believers in Christ, we don't put anything in our body. You don't have anything added to your brain. You don't need it. You don't want it. And you could say, what about prosthetics and people that need robotics to move their hands? And like, that's a different topic. Don't confuse the issue. You don't need your iPhone in your brain. You probably don't need your iPhone in your hand. You cyborgs. Anyway, <laughs> I'm sorry, we cyborgs. But I digress. The, the message of everybody is everybody. Well, I don't feel like it's that way. I, I know most people don't. The population of the earth, I heard recently, has peaked over 8 billion. I think that we're, we're pushing beyond 8 billion people now. Um, you know, I mean, this time around, we don't know how many people before. We got washed, all, washed away, but uh, 8 billion people on planet Earth, it's a lot of people. Most of them are going to be of this latter category that in life they did not receive the message of a relationship with the only creator through the only avenue of salvation, through the only son of God who died for their sins and the only one who could do anything about their sin. They're not going to uh, approach that avenue of salvation. And so they're going to find out the hard way, but this is the destiny of mankind. We are all going to proclaim this is how it is. But I thought it was a different way. Yeah, you're wrong. Guess what I need to do with that? I need to tell the truth when I'm wrong. Oh, it's so good to learn that we are not right. You know where I learned this? You're like, with your parents spanking you? Yeah. But also math class. I was the kind of math student that was a boy. And so what happened was I wasn't necessarily very careful with all the little details and so I would miss things. I would miss, miss add in my, process, in my procedure. I knew the procedure, but I would get the wrong answer. I mean, twice in a row, two different answers. It wouldn't be sometimes till the third time I worked that problem that I got the right answer. And I learned something about myself, and I hope we all learn something about ourselves. We're not that sharp. We're not that solid in our reasoning. We don't really see things as they are. I've heard that you still can't read Marie Curie's notes because they're still radioactive. But, but you couldn't see the radioactivity, but it's there. And, and she was a genius, and I'm not putting anything, I'm putting, putting her down at all. I'm just saying there's lots that, that is there that we can't see. And if you go beyond the physical realm to the spiritual that is the origin of all that's physical, you have to say, if verse 11 is true, then we ought to get with the program before we're under the earth in judgment, saying, okay, so now I see. But this is the destiny of the world. Now, I'm trying to equip you for evangelism. We're not, doing, um, uh, we're not doing victory laps on people. In fact, <clears throat> as far as laps go, let me paint that image of the school bus, the yellow diesel school bus that's delightful combustion engine using compression and glow plugs. You, you got the smell in your nostrils of the school bus? It, 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 you miss the bus. The bus comes at 8.15 at the bus stop, and you were there at 8.16, 8.17, and he was sharp this morning, and, and you missed it. You ever have that feeling where you missed the bus? Mom's going to be so upset. <laughs> I've got to get to school, and this changes their whole day, and, and that's not going to be good. And, and um, then there's the grace of God, and he swings back around. Maybe he caught you out of the corner of his eye when he, he saw you coming out and he was up at the stop sign and he saw you come out to the stop and he swings back around. And you hear that bus coming again, that low rumble from a long way off, that diesel rumble, and you hear that bus coming up. <gasps> He's giving me a second chance. 
he's coming. That's what you and I are here in the United States today. The gospel message of Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ landed here. It was the basis for this colony here in the, the New Haven colony and then Connecticut, and it died here. And we got Unitarian and denied the deity of Christ uh, before anyone else did uh, here in New England. And the, the thought was, was, was taken root here, and then it died here. And that's the story of Princeton University or Princeton Theological Princeton Divinity School, which became the university, and the, the destruction of faith even before the birth of our country in part. The Unitarian movement destroyed the faith of, the, of New England. And you thought it was because we're blue states and red states. No, these thoughts are way before we went into insanity about socialism. But here we are. We're here in New England telling people Jesus is the only answer. That's what founded this colony. And that's, that's what we've stuck with. We're, we're, another, we're another shot. We're the bus coming around one more time. What a privilege. What, a, what an incredible honor. But what compassion I have to have. That school bus driver seeing me out of the corner of his eye. Uh, I got some time. I'll come back around. We just heard the hymn, Thou Didst Leave Thy Throne. It's a little print up here, but you can see it in your, in your hymnal in hymn number 170 if you want to look at it. And it's a, it's, a, it's a message for Christmas about Jesus being God before he was Jesus. He was the son of God. He was Yahweh. And he didn't stop being Yahweh, but he left his throne or his father's throne to become one of us. And it's called this great condescension of the incarnation. Anybody know what incarnation means? It's a Latin word. You're like, I thought it was a French word, incarnation. Carne isn't just a Mexican dish. Chili con carne, right? Carne means meat in Latin, and it's the taking on of meat, the enfleshment, where you didn't have a body before, but you became embodied as a human being. That's what it means that he was incarnate, and that's what we're studying. In Christ- that's what Christmas is. The whole festival of, of the birth of Christ is that he, God became one of us. And so the, the, the old hymn from 1864, it's not that old in church history, that's 1,800 years into church history. <laughs> but thou didst leave thy throne and thy kingly crown when thou ca- camest to earth for me. But in Bethlehem's home was there found no room for the holy nativity. The point the poet is making here is the contrast between the glory and exaltation of God in heaven, in his abode, and the coming to earth as a peasant, the one who owns all things, we're told in Hebrews that he's the heir of all things, the one to inherit everything. He's, such a, he's born a peasant. They have to give the peasant offering. He's got a holy bloodline. He's got a righteous kingly bloodline, but he's born to peasants. And they don't even have a place to, to, to lay him, and that's the point of the manger scene and the announcement to the shepherds. Poor people. No place. <laughs> If you know somebody important's coming over, do you say, I'm sorry, we, we, have, we already have people uh, uh, in all the places that you might deliver your infant. I'm sorry, we, uh, we already have paying customers. No, you do what Clint Eastwood did when he comes into the hotel. Get out. <laughs> Get your stuff. Is this your stuff? Get out. We got somebody important coming. <laughs> It's the Lord Jesus Christ is God the, God the Son, and nobody knew. Nobody expected it, and mankind is caught off guard. We always are. Oh, come to my heart, Lord Jesus. There's room in my heart for thee. I was trying to show this to the kids when we talk about gifts and leave a gift 
you know, don't pay, don't pay attention to it. It's the thing you wanted and then you have it and then you don't care about it. You don't play with it. You don't enjoy that thing. This is mankind, this is the church in rejection of a radical engagement with God's word. Because the more I'm in the word, the more the world is less, the less relevant it is to me. And the more I'm in the word, the more real Christ is to me. And the more I can enjoy my blessing, my gift. I would, <laughs> Christmas time, I'm always talking about these idiotic human good Christmas movies. <laughs> um, the Grinch just keeps coming back to mind because everyone gets saved, right? The Grinch gets saved. There's no cross anywhere. There's no, there's no baby in the manger. It's just that Christmas isn't, it isn't the gifts. It's that we're all together. So close. It's not the stuff. It's not the time of year. It's not that my circumstances are fine. It's that the big picture circumstances are solved. I have a relationship with the only celebrity who is ever born. The only man that should be front and center in our attention. If we're a teenage girl, we should put his poster up on the wall. The only one that deserves our attention and our love. Some of you are teenage girls. You're like, I don't put posters on the wall. You have a Christian worldview. Heaven's arches rang when the angels sang, proclaiming thy royal de- degree. See, the angels know who he is. They proclaim him. But of lowly birth didst thou come to earth and in great humility. O come to my heart, Lord Jesus, there's room in my heart for thee. The foxes found rest and the birds their nest. That's what Jesus told the disciples when they asked, can we come with you? Well, you can, but there's not a lot in this world for you. In the shade of the forest tree, but thou... Thy couch was the sod, O thou Son of God, in the depths of the deserts of Galilee. Thou camest, O Lord, with the living word that should set thy people free, but with mocking scorn, the crown of thorn, they bore thee to Calvary. Calvary is the Latin for the hill of the skull. It means the place where Jesus was crucified. It has nothing to do with horses. When the heavens shall ring and the angels sing, At thy coming to victory, this is the second advent, let thy voice call me home, saying, yes, there is room, yet there is room, there is room at my side for thee. My heart shall rejoice, Lord Jesus, when thou comest and callest for me. This is the sense that Christians should have of a legitimate privilege. Paul says, we're the scum of the earth, and he's talking about himself. He says, we're the foolish of the world, and the wisdom of the world scorns us and laughs us to scorn. He says that we should be the object of the world's pity and our confusion. I saw this recently in a recent Christmas special. (laughs) Of course, I'm referring to the Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special by Marvel. Don't raise your hands. I know you saw it. If you haven't seen it, uh, it's a Marvel product. It's all right. Very interesting moment. The Guardians of the Galaxy with their superpowers actually come to earth to kidnap Kevin Bacon, of course. Merry Christmas. Okay, Kevin Bacon is this actor from the 80s. Okay. Some of you are like, this is not Sunday material. Just wait a second. If you see the way the culture treats us and treats this event, it's a Christmas special, and they say Merry Christmas in it. I'm looking for this kind of thing. I'm looking at the culture. And all the kids are watching this. All the kids in the Good News Club are all over this. You better know your culture. When the two... 
uh, it's kind of a buddy movie. There's a comic character that's a big strong guy and a, a comic character that's a girl that's, um, that's an empath. And she's the straight and he's the comic. And they're really funny, the, the dialogue. When they come to get Kevin Bacon, they see American Christmas. They see the Christmas stuff all around and they see a nativity scene. And they stare at it. And it's a big focal moment. Now, one of the actors in this, Chris Pratt, is one of the only Christians that's publicly a Christian in Hollywood and still making money. And, uh, and he isn't in the scene at all, but these two characters that are, one of them is very publicly atheist as an actor, they look at the nativity scene and the decorations and they take a moment. It's like a four-second scene. They look at each other and they look back and they don't say anything. And it's this moment in the culture where I think it's so obvious that this story of a baby being born in a backwater that everyone's worried about this doesn't really apply because we're actually dealing with the, you know, the universe and the galaxy and all the planets and everything. This, is, this doesn't apply to us. That was what I took from, from that moment. And the culture, those of you who saw it probably know what I'm talking about. Maybe you, maybe you noticed that. Those of you who didn't are probably like, I'll probably pass. <laughs> but the kids are dealing with this, and it's a lot of pressure. Interestingly, they didn't poo-poo it. They didn't come down and say, that's Whatever. They left you, the audience, to intuit that this is irrelevant. And this is interesting. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue will confess. And so I'm asking you to be that bus driver and have a little compassion. That's the way Satan's deception works on the world. And it's coming out in every possible outlet. But this doctrine of the incarnation is such a huge impact and I want, you to, I want to challenge you to reflect on it, to think about it, because we will never fully grasp all that it implies. We'll never fully understand it. But the more we look at it, I think the more we'll be equipped to represent it. In Philippians 2.5, I'll put it verse by verse. This is the Greek Byzantine or majority text from which the Textus Receptus comes. <clears throat> he says something interesting in Greek. He says, for this thinking is to be in you. And this is a verb here for neo. Y'all don't know that, but I do. It's a common verb for thinking, but it's a, a passive imperative. That's a weird thing. It's to be in you. It's to happen. It's to happen to you, kind of. Passive imperative. And this gets even weirder. It's a third-person imperative. We don't do that in English. We don't have any third-person imperatives. We have ways of working around it. So um, they just skip the problem in the New American Standard, and they say, have this thinking in you. They put it in second person. But literally, it's this thinking subject is to be in you. This is what's supposed to happen. And that doesn't happen without meditation on the Word. Give it a chance. Give us six months. Give it every day in the Word of God and talk to Him about it. I'm not talking about something radical. Be, do baby steps, 30 minutes in the Word, 30 minutes in prayer. One 24th of your day. See what happens. This is to be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. So this launches, the gar tells you the previous stuff is important because he's instructing the Philippians to think more highly of others than themselves as we really developed last time. And so it's explanatory to what to, of what he, he said before. And rem, remember, this passage on the incarnation of Christ as the God-man is, an, is a, a, an illustration for us 
as believers how we should live. It's very interesting. He, he's illustrating this doctrine using apparently what was a hymn they were singing in his day. Most Greek scholars believe this passage, 5 through 11, is a hymn. Uh, it's a song they were singing. And it's the only explanation that it's the most satisfying explanation for the strange grammar, all the participles. It's a, it's a, it's a song, it's poetry. Who in morphe of God being, and this is why you've got me, because you read in your English Bible being in the form of God, existing in the form of God, and I'm telling you that's the word morphe. And why is that important for you? Because as you're reading and you're trying to study in detail, you're like, I've got a really good English Bible. I've got a New American Standard. It's very detailed and tries to be word for word. Or I've got a King James, and they try to translate word for word where they're not being poetic. And I've got a really good translation. I'm really going to work hard to see if, um, if I can study this out and dig down. Well, if you see the word form, and you take that to mean what we do with the word form, then you end up with a possibility that Jesus is look, someone that looked like he was God. He had the form or the appearance of Godhood, but not really being God. But this is Greek. Morphe, which we translate form, to them doesn't mean looks like. It means is the essence of, has the properties that make that thing what it is, whatever the morphe is. And furthermore, I'm, a, I'm dogmatic and certain that that's what you do with this morphe, this form word. He does it again when he says of man. He's in the morphe of man. Whatever he is of man, he is also of God. Whatever he's of God, he's also of man. He's the very essence of the thing. So if he only appeared as God, then he only appeared as a man. If he only appeared as a man, he only appeared as God. And then you have something that doesn't make any sense. It's absurd. No, he's very God of very God in the flesh of mankind. And morphe of God being, huparkon is a, participle, not as something to be grasped did he regard thee to be equal to God, is the Greek, interlinearly translated. I've cleaned it up a little bit for English. Not as something to be grasped did he consider equality with God. And this is the English syntax, the way we write sentences in English, who although being in the form of God did not regard equality with God, something to be held on to. The, the thing to take away from this is that he did not hang on to. He didn't think that this was something that he needed to, to hang on to. And uh, this is the key. Have this thinking in verse 5 in yourselves, which is also in Christ. In verse 6, he did not consider, regard, or think. Different word, but synonymous. The Christian life is thinking more than feeling. It's thinking before it's feel. Oh, I feel really humble right now. That's not what we're talking about. He didn't consider, regard, think that equality with God, the Father, as something to hang on to, even though he is in the very essence of the Father. This is the condescension that draws our worship. This is the Christmas event. That this is his attitude, and he has his rights, and he has his proper place, and the world should honor him and respect him and praise him and glorify him. And they spit at him, and they mock him, and they hurt his kids. His, those that have come after him. Jesus asked the, the men of Jerusalem, which of, the, which of the prophets sent by the Father did your fathers not kill? What we're supposed to do with God is honor him and praise him and worship him. And he came here knowing what would happen. He came here for the death of the cross. He came here because there's no way to save us except for the blood sacrifice of the cross. 
And so he didn't hang on to anything like his proper place. This is an inversion. This condescension starts with he has the very essence of God. He didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to. And he goes from being the most exalted person to being the most humiliated person. It's, it's, it's um, logarithmic. It's exponential when you go from being in the form of God to being humbled to the point of the death of the cross. The greatest height comes to the lowest depth. And this is interesting, too, because as God in the flesh, he has no sin. He's not a sinful human like us. He's got no sin of his own. He's going to pay for our sins. So not only is he humbling himself as God took taking on the flesh of man, but he's taking our sins on himself, which are the consequences of our choices, like we saw last hour, the abuse of our volition, the choices we've made that are wrong. And Jesus never made any of those for himself, so he can take yours on himself. And that's the substitution. In the morphe, or form of God, the very essence of God being, he did not consider as something to be grasped, equality with God. But the next main verb is kanao. He emptied himself. He emptied himself. And bad theologians have grabbed that word kanao, and they've said, let's use it as a noun, kenosis. And they've used that theological category word, which comes from this verse, to mean that he stopped being God. And that's their explanation for how he can say the Son of Man doesn't know something or the Son of Man isn't given to the Son of Man or something where there seem to be limitations on Jesus Christ that are not on God. We saw the limitation. He emptied himself by voluntarily restricting the expression of his divinity. It doesn't mean that he stops being God because he's in the very essence of God. Try to stop being what you are. That's a funny thing in our culture today. We're all going to try to stop being what we are. We are what we are, but we don't like it, so we're going to try to be the thing that we're not. This is the most intriguing thing about that to me. Well, I feel like I'm the other thing that I'm not. How do you know? How do you know what it feels like to be the other thing? You only know what it feels like to be you. She only knows what it feels like to be her. How can you say you feel like you're her? You don't know what it feels like to be her. That's an existential crisis they'll never dig out of. Oh, don't think these deep thoughts. Don't try to apply ration, rational uh, thought to culture because, well, that, that would be offensive and oppressive. I feel like a toaster. <laughs> I don't know what it feels like to be a toaster. Of course I'm talking about toasters. He emptied himself. <laughs> By morphe, morphe and doulos, he became the, more, the, the form, the essence of a slave. He took the, the form or essence of a slave. So see what I meant? In verse 5, or verse 6, he's the morphe of God. In verse 7, he's the morphe of a slave. He is the essence of those things. He is not looking like those things. He is those things. We have words for appearance in the passage, but we're talking now about the essence. So this establishes in verse 7 the basis for what we call the hypostatic union, the union of the two natures in one, one person who is now composed of two natures, two distinct natures, and we have to insist on that type of language. There's no other way to, to express it. He truly is human. He isn't a hybridized human that has integrated divinity into humanity. He is a God. He is God, sorry, in the flesh of man, and he's true humanity, and he's undiminished deity in one person forever. That doctrine has been how we've, we've called it the hypostatic union, the union of the two natures, since the 200s AD, as Christians are wrestling with this kind of passage. Ever heard of oneness Pentecostalism? See, if you let go of the text and you grab hold of your feelings and then you use those to understand the text, you can make the Bible say anything you want. 
Here's what happened in Oneness Pentecostalism, as I understand it. They said, with their hyper-emotionalism, and what I feel is what matters, and their God is their stomach, is Philippians 3's account of that, and a hyper-emotionalism that won't let the text correct them. They said, well, I read in Matthew 28 that you must baptize them into the name singular of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the one name of the three, Father, Son, and Spirit, must be Jesus so that Jesus is the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It's a new warmed-over idiocy called modalism, and we've known about this for 1,800 years. We fought this all out in the early church. But see, this is what happens. Stuff occurs to me. I had a good idea. I have, I have good ideas all the time, right, Mike? I'm the hot air balloon. Mike's the ballast. This is the arrangement. This whole thing works because I have ideas and Mike has reality. And sometimes my ideas can get through reality. And man, it must be a good idea if it gets past Mike. That's how, that's, don't you like the cushion? No, that wasn't my idea. I liked it when someone proposed it. Now, this is a good idea, but it's not the Bible. It's actually a very bad idea. You can't have the Son created by the Father because he can't be of the same morphe as the Father. There is no beginning and no end to eternality. So you have God the Son. But here's the great condescension. He He emptied himself by morphe of a slave taking and unlikeness of men becoming. I should say, in likeness of men. That was, mis- mis- that was a typo. O and I are right next to each other, turns out. See what happens in translation? Transcription errors. They're going to have a big war about this 20 years or 200 years from now that it's on the likeness. No, it's in the likeness. I mistyped it. In the likeness of men becoming. So you have language for appearance, but you also have language for essence, for the very being. He's God in the flesh. He is really a human being. As you read the Old Testament, bring this thought to bear. As you read through, I am that I am. Tell them I am sent you. As you read through what God is doing in his self-disclosure, remember this, that the God who made covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob became one of us to fulfill, ultimately, all the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In appearance, having been found as a man, I know that's pretty clunky, but you have an aorist passive participle, so I have to say it's completed summary action, having been found, it's passive, and it's a participle, having been found as a man. The next main verb, he humbled himself. The main verbs drive it. He didn't regard equality with God, but he emptied himself, and now he humbled himself. What you think drives what you do. He humbled himself, Tapenao, which is to humble yourself by becoming obedient to the point of death. De, yea, even, but the death of the cross. This, this little particle makes me say even the death of the cross. So it accentuates the death of the cross. It takes it another step. He humbled himself being the eternal one who has eternal life. He, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Next step over, death says even the death of the cross. Think about the death that he died is what the hymn is saying, what Paul is quoting here. And by that quotation, it becomes the word of God. This is a theological reflection of the early church that the apostle Paul includes in Philippians. And we don't know if he wrote it or if he wrote it down because they were singing it. 
In his day, there were prophets and they were speaking direct revelation from God. And I bet the hymns were great. <laughs> One of the jokes that uh, we tell, Louis Barry Chafer was a, was a musician. He was a singer and a trumpet player. He majored in music in his formal education. And he founded Dallas Seminary eventually and uh, has had an incredible impact on my life and countless others. I call him Grandpa in the Faith. He was the pastor that trained my pastor. Uh, Chafer would say that uh, the, hymn, the hymn book is full of, of horrible blasphemies because artists don't know theology. And so he was very careful what, what you sing and what you don't. You know, songs that say, come on, honest Holy Spirit. Well, that's not biblical at all because the Holy Spirit came to the church and every believer has the Holy Spirit today. And so we don't sing the come on me Holy Spirit songs because it's not how it works. And we don't want the kids to think that because they get confused. Amen. So the, so the, Chafer said, you know, that the, the hymnal is full of blasphemies. And I think he might have said, if he didn't say it, I said it after him, that the devil, when he fell, he, he fell in the choir loft. You know, and then he bounced. And when he bounced, he landed in the Old Testament department <laughs> where they will deny the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch and say they're Bible-believing Christians, for example. All right, well... What is the outcome of this passage for Christmas for me? What is the reflection? We just sang it, joy, joy, joy. I'm supposed to rejoice with joy inexpressible in my Savior. And I'm supposed to do that all the time. But only if I'm thinking about it, only when it occurs to me, only when this is real to me. And that's why we keep it fresh and we keep coming back to the Word. That's one takeaway. Another big one is that Christmas is not about me exalting myself. It's not about me getting. It's that I've received what did God give? And what is the example I'm supposed to take on? He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. I'm supposed to follow in that pattern and others are to be more important to me than myself. And that, that theme shows up in Dickens. It shows up in, you know, all the, all the human good Christmas stuff. That there's a humbling of oneself where it's not about you, it's about the other. Beloved, only in Christ, only with the real example that has made us one with God by his work on the cross, can you and I humble ourselves in the power of the Spirit and fulfill that design, recapitulating the character of Jesus Christ? Our Father, we thank you for the awesome privilege we've had to think about the Scriptures today, to think about your Son. We have no idea what to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we talk to the world around us, and various cultures will say, yes, they believe in Jesus. Yes, Jesus is important. Father, it seems that very few people understand the Christian confession of who your son is, and I pray that that not be so with us. But that we be so consumed with zeal and joy in our Savior and who he is and what he's done for us, that these things be so real to us that we have the context in our character, not you know, so much in our feeling, but in our commitments to represent him to a world in darkness and deception that so desperately needs us. So it definitely needs that gospel message. And Father, we continue to pray for our family and friends, all those on the list who do not know your son. Father, you know who they are, and we truly don't. We don't know where someone stands with you, but you do. And we're interceding right now for those here with us, those in our lives, those in our families and our friends, even the mailman, whoever it is. Help them come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Give them every opportunity and use us as you see fit. For we ask it in Jesus' name, we all said, Amen. amen. Josh, come on.